I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We, um, uh, I hope you're acquainted with the book Christ the Healer. It's uh, one of the best and most comprehensive works on the subject of healing that's ever been written, at least that I've ever seen. And um, it was written by a gentleman named Bosworth, F.F. Bosworth. And he had healing revivals, healing campaigns. He came up through the um, um, Pentecostal church. And during the healing revival days, he had some of the largest crowds of anybody. Not because there were multitudes of people healed by the laying on of hands. Most of the people in, in the uh, Voice of Healing days, the healing revival days, would have uh, tents uh, because they were the, the largest venues in many of the places that they went, many of the towns that, that they traveled to. And, um, and most of them, uh, most of the ministers in the healing revival had a special anointing in the area of healing. But that wasn't the case with Brother Bosworth. He got most, more people healed uh, just by teaching the Word than any other way. There were, during his lifetime and during his ministry, over 500,000 documented cases. That doesn't mean somebody that received their healing without or apart from a doctor's report, but these were people that had received their healings and gone back, and the same doctors that had diagnosed them with whatever disease they had um, declared and admitted and wrote up um, testimonies of the healings that had taken place and, and many of those healings were miraculous. And he said, Brother Bosworth said, you know, if a guy's got over 500,000 documented cases of healing, he might know something about the subject, don't you think? Well, he said this. He said that in his experience toward the latter part of his life, he said throughout his healing ministry in the years, decades, that he had preached and taught healing in a variety of uh, applications and places. He said the number one thing, without a doubt, the number one thing that kept people from receiving their healing was a lack of knowledge. They weren't fully convinced that God wanted them healed. In Matthew chapter 8, we've got the one and only one instance where somebody came to Jesus questioning his willingness to heal. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, let me start in verse 1. When he, talking about Jesus, came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now with all the people that came to Jesus, and, and I have no idea how many people were healed under his ministry, the Bible talks about multitudes. It talks about a multitude in many places where Jesus ministered healing to the sick. It talks about multitudes following him. I don't know how many people those are, but it would, I just assume it's a lot. And of all the times and all the places, the instances the Word of God tells us, including the multitudes, where people were healed through Jesus' ministry and by him, whether the laying on of hands or some other method, this is the only guy that didn't know if it was God's will. The only one. Now, I would submit to you folks that the majority of the church world is in the same spot as this guy, this leper, in Matthew chapter 8. You can't find many Christians that would deny God's ability to heal. 
Who's going to stand up and say, well, God used to be able to heal, but he can't heal the sick anymore? People would be afraid to say something like that. They'd be looking for shelter from the lightning bolt that might be coming. Everybody agrees. Every denomination, everybody that's named the name of Jesus in any respect or any way to come into the family of God, everybody believes that God can heal. But just like this leper, the the main issue, the main hindrance for people receiving is their lack of conviction that God wants them well. And so Brother Bosworth would always start off in whatever campaign that he had, and usually he'd go to a place that's safer um, many weeks, several weeks. But in some cases that wasn't possible, and so he was just there for a week. In all the places that he went to, he always started off with teaching about it being God's will to heal. And he always, without exception, went back to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 was recognized in Jesus' day as well as today to be referring to and talking about the Messiah and the work of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 4 says, surely, the only time the word surely is used in this chapter And it's used regarding sickness and disease. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. King James talked about griefs and sorrows. The other places in the uh, Old Testament where those words are used, they're translated sickness and pain. Surely he has carried our sickness and pains. Yet we did esteem him smitten, stricken of God and afflicted. Verse 5 goes on to say, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now here in Matthew chapter 8, move a little bit further down in the chapter at about verse 16. In verse 16, we have a Holy Spirit commentary on what Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 is talking about. It said, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, And healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. You can see the similarity in verse 17 to Isaiah 53 5. Now, let's think about that and talk about that for a minute. Here it says, Jesus healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which Isaiah said. Again, Isaiah said in verse 4, chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Well, here where the Bible says in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, that, or verse 17, when it talks about that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, we've got to understand what the fulfillment means. See, I, uh, Acts, Matthew Matthew chapter 8 verse 17 doesn't take the place of Jesus suffering on the cross. So when it says Jesus fulfilled the scriptures which were spoken of him here on the earth during his earthly ministry, we have to come to some understanding, God's point of view, on what that means. See, when Jesus performed this healing work in Matthew chapter 8, along with all the other healing works during the course of his three years of ministry, None of those things took the place of the blood that he had to shed on the cross. It couldn't. Because there was only one sacrifice that was worthy 
of deliverance from spiritual death which held mankind in bondage. And that was Jesus being pierced in Pilate's court where he was beaten. And the language, the Hebrew language that describes what took place is astounding in its brutality in the very force of the violence that was used against him. The back of our Savior that was offered to the Roman government to effect a healing and a cure for us is beyond gruesome. I know, remember some years ago when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, one of the complaints that everybody had, the people that were complaining, some people complained about anything, it doesn't matter whether it's good or not. But some of the complaints, the majority complaints that I heard was the gruesomeness and the violence. It was too bloody that some, some would say. And folks, there's no way you could accurately portray that on a movie. It was a lot worse if the Bible account is true. The beating upon Jesus was a lot worse than what the movie tried to show. So we may recoil from the bloodiness, the goriness that the movie portrayed, but it didn't come close to what the reality was. Well, then if it doesn't take the place literally, if Jesus healing people here in Matthew chapter 8 didn't take the place literally of the stripes that were put on his back, the beating that he took in Pilate's, uh, Pilate's court, then what is the fulfillment? Remember, God calls things that be not as though they are. God says a thing, and as far as he's concerned, it's done. We'll look in a minute or two about what God said to, to Abraham in Romans chapter 4. But God called Abraham the father of nations before he had any children. And as far as God's concerned, once he says a thing, it's done. Well, the same thing would be true of Jesus. Concerning the prophecies about Jesus, Acts, uh, Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 being just one of them, of all the things that were prophesied and spoken of the Messiah that was to come, as far as God was concerned, once Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost and began his earthly ministry, God considered him the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Jesus had, didn't have to perform to become the Lamb of God. He didn't have to take such or any action to be pleasing enough to God to be our substitute. He was our substitute when he came to the earth. And when he yielded himself to the plan and purpose of God for which he was sent to the earth, as far as God's concerned, it's done. Hadn't played out yet. Talking about from Matthew chapter 8. It hadn't played out yet, but as far as God was concerned, it was done. Now let's read Matthew 8, 16 and 17 again with that understanding. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Notice all were healed. He healed all that were sick. The fulfillment of Jesus that Matthew chapter 8 speaks of, the work that he would take upon himself, the beating that he would take upon himself that would pay the price for sickness and disease had to include everybody. The fulfillment had to include everybody. And folks, that's the message of Matthew chapter 8 and verses 16 and 17. Everybody had their sickness paid for. Healing was made available for everybody. 
Not just some. Not just special ones. But everybody. Healing had to be for all. Now if we remember back to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. We should be able to see that anyway. Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. Who's our? That's everybody, isn't it? That mean, it means everybody in, in Isaiah's day, everybody in Jesus' day, and everybody in our day. Nobody would argue that the punishment that Jesus took upon himself, the blood that he shed for sin, nobody would argue that's just for some or a few, would they? That's for everybody. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Here's another reference to sin. I believe the difference between transgressions and iniquity has to do with the difference between personal sin and Adam's original sin. Jesus paid the price for both. Well, who's left out in our iniquities part? Is anybody left out? He was bruised for our iniquities. Does anybody preach that that's just for some? Does anybody preach that that's just for a select few? Even the people that believe in predestination to the extreme take the position that if somebody gets saved, if somebody is born again, if the, if the payment for their iniquities is paid, then once they get saved, the predestination crowd says, well, they were predestined for it. But even in their own doctrine, even in their own theology, it's available for everybody to receive it. Well, the Bible goes on in verse 5. Of Isaiah 53. He, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Whose peace? Our peace. Anybody left out on that? Well then why do we come to the end of the same verse. Knowing full well and knowing that the church admits and accepts. That Jesus being wounded for our transgressions meant for everybody. Jesus being bruised for our iniquities meant for everybody. The chastisement of our peace being upon him. That was for everybody. But then the last phrase. And with his stripes, we are healed. Who's we? Wouldn't we have to be the same ones that were included in the hour concerning transgressions? Wouldn't the we and the healing phrase have to pertain to and have to include the same ones that Jesus was bruised for our iniquities? Wouldn't they have to be the same group? Nobody left out. What about our chastisement? was upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What about that? Wouldn't that have to be the same as with his stripes we are healed? See folks you've got to change the scripture to come up with the idea that God wants you saved from sin more than he wants you healed from sickness. Because the same price was paid for both. The blood of Jesus was shed. So brother Bosworth would always start off and go for as long as he felt was important or necessary in, in any of these campaigns that he was in. Toward the latter part of his life, and really he had um, uh, retired, pretty well just retired from the ministry until the healing revival began. Most of his ministry was, took place in the years before the healing revival began. But then he became acquainted with William Branham, who was one of the leaders of the healing revival and, and uh, stood in the office of a prophet. And God used him in some tremendous ways. His um, brother Hagin used to say of Branham, he never saw anybody more accurate in the things of the Spirit than William Branham. And Branham would describe it sometimes as saying, 
uh, well, I should tell you what his ministry was like, how he ministered first. He would have people come up on the platform, and he would just stand there and talk to them a little bit. He would confirm with the, uh, the person for the crowd to hear that they didn't know each other. He didn't know anything about her, and they hadn't met before, and nobody's asked her any questions about herself and all that kind of stuff. And while he was talking, he said this. He said, while I'm talking to people, he said, it's like all of a sudden, I'm lifted up above a fence. It's like when we first begin to talk, there's a fence, a wall in between me and the person. But then he said, when the Holy Ghost begins to manifest himself, it's like I'm lifted up to where I can see over the fence. And he said, once I see over the fence... He said, I can see what their condition is. I can see what their sickness is. I can see what the doctors told them about it and other details. And he would identify those details, which was, you could well imagine, was a, an encouragement to people that God really does care about it. That God's doing something supernatural here to show his love and, and willingness to heal. Well, Brother Branham operated in a tremendous way like that, but his was primarily... Well, not really primarily. It was exclusively a gift ministry. And so when Brother Bosworth saw this and became acquainted with him through some mutual friends, they talked about the opportunity or the possibility of Branham traveling with Brother Bosworth. Or I should say that the other way around. Where Brother Bosworth would travel with Branham. And he would conduct healing services during the day or just teaching on healing during the day. And once they started that and when they uh, agreed, worked out all the details of how this is going to happen and so forth, the results that Branham got increased tenfold because the people were better equipped and put in a better position for the Holy Ghost to manifest himself. Their faith was built up before the service, the evening services that Branham would conduct were even started. And so the results were miraculous. The, uh, the number of people that were healed and blessed and ministered to by the Holy Ghost just went through the roof. It just skyrocketed. Well, Brother Branham, uh, I'm sorry, Brother Bosworth said something else. He said, without question, the greatest hindrance to people receiving their healing is their lack of conviction. And what I mean by that is they were not fully persuaded that God wanted them healed, that healing was for everybody. So Brother Branham would try to dispel that and to a great degree did which probably accounts for the much greater results that took place after they began to work together. But then he said this also. He said, but the people that receive their healing, many people lose it. It's not just a matter of getting your healing. It's a matter of maintaining your healing. And Brother Bosworth said, and without a doubt, the number one way that people are the number one thing that causes people to lose their healing after they had once and first received it was counterattack. And he said that counterattack was always pain. And typically what would happen, somebody would receive their healing, and usually after the, the crusade was over, it wasn't usually a, a, just a one-day or two-day thing where people would lose it before they left town, before the, the ministers left town. He said, but over a period of time, a pain would develop in their bodies, usually something similar to what they'd been healed of, and the thought would come to them, oh no, I thought I was healed, but I guess I'm not. Now that was so absurd in many cases that it, 
except it was tragic, it would have been funny. I mean, because the devil would tell people you never really received your healing from things that were obvious to be seen, like blind eyes opened. But then a pain would return or a symptom of the blindness would return and people would fall into doubt. So Brother Bosworth took a lot of time to talk about the things that would shore people up and strengthen them to avoid these counterattacks when they came or to be able to defend against them with the truth of the word. Look with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 tells us about the faith of Abraham and Bosworth taught some tremendous truths and messages on the subject of faith. Because faith is the only way you're going to receive your healing. There is no other means or method whereby healing is provided except through faith. And faith is always founded in God's word. Romans chapter 10 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But Romans 4.17, it's talking about the relationship and interaction Abraham had with God. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. God called Abraham the father of nations before he ever had a child. And that's the way God always works. He speaks that which will be. And when he does, as far as he's concerned, it is. Now that's tough for us. Because we're, un, unless we're schooled and skilled through experience, we're not used to taking things that God says as the absolute truth when it contradicts what we see and feel. And that's where the real struggle or the real fight of faith takes place. So it's sp spoken or referred to in the Old Testament that God said to Abraham, I have made thee the father of many nations before him whom he believed. Even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. In other words, it's telling us that Abraham began to speak life to his body. Imitating God who quickens the dead. Well, the only dead thing here relative to Abraham's story or his experience in faith to receive the, the promised, promised son, Isaac, when he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. The only thing that's dead here are their bodies. And so he began to speak life unto his body and her body. They began to speak life because God said that it would be. God said he's already been made the father of many nations. Well, you can't be the father of many nations unless you have a child. You've got to have at least one. And so he began to imitate God. That's what this word before means. It means like unto God. It's telling us that Abraham had to start acting like God. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. I know that freaks some people out. Some people uh, don't really take the time to find out what we're saying when we make those statements. They think that we're operating in arrogance. We've had people say things like, you just think you're little gods here on the earth or some stupid thing like that. But think about it for a moment. Children of the devil act like the devil, don't they? Then why shouldn't children of God act like God? So the two things that it tells us that Abraham began to do, he began to speak life unto his body, and he began to call things that be not as though they were. He began to act like God in his speech. To speak life to a dead body, 
with the expectation that life would return. And the life I'm talking about is not physical life, or phys- uh, the opposite of physical death, but it's talking about the life that God's power brings into our flesh to cause his word to come to pass. So he began to say that his body, his and Sarah's bodies were alive, talking about it in a reproductive manner. And then he began to call himself the father of nations just like God had. Now you know as well as I do, especially without any other encouragement, Abraham had nobody but God to to talk to, to encourage him. He didn't have the privilege of walking down to, to the end of the street to the faith church, the Pentecostal church, or somebody else that believes in healing. He was on his own, the ultimate of being on his own. And so it tells us what else he did. It says, who against hope believed in hope. In other words, there was nothing in the physical realm, certainly nothing in their bodies that gave him any hope to have children at this advanced age. But he believed in hope. Where did he get the hope to believe in? He got it from what God said. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. Here's where he got it according to that which was spoken. Folks, the Bible is designed to give us hope. That's God's plan. Now, I know, especially in the area of healing, you'll find people in the medical community or loved ones or lay members, whatever. You'll find people that take the position that we shouldn't give the sick false hope. Well, I guess I can agree with that. But what do they mean by false hope? See, most of the people that say those things are talking about the Bible as being false hope. There's no such thing as false hope where the Bible's concerned. None whatsoever, because God's word is true in every respect, down to the most minute detail. So how can you take the scripture and create false hope? I'm sure there were plenty of people in Abraham's day, had he had these kind of relationships or spent time around people that didn't believe in God's hand being upon him or whatever. I'm sure there were plenty of people that would have thought he was crazy. That would have thought he was off of his rocker. To expect that something that God said many, many, many years before, 25 years before, in fact, was still something that he could put his hope into. But he did. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. See, if God said to Abraham, so shall thy seed be, then he's got to have seed. Now the place where God said, so shall thy seed be, was at a point in time in Abraham's life when God took him outside and told him to look into the heavens and number the stars. Abraham said, there's no way to know. There's no way to count that many. That's when God said, so shall your seed be. And he took hope in that. Even though he could see the condition of his body, even though he could could see the condition in Sarah's body, even though he could see that their bodies did not act or respond in a reproductive manner as they had when they were younger, every symptom, every circumstance pointed to failure. It pointed to foolishness or the folly of trusting what God said instead of what he could see or feel. 
but who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, folks, that's a choice. It's not a byproduct of some people's godly character. It's a choice. You can choose to be either weak in faith or strong in faith. Actually, there's one other choice, and that is to be faithless. I don't recommend that one. But those are a choice that we make. Anybody, no matter how long they've been walking with God or how new they are to the family of God, anybody can be strong in faith if you know how. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. You see the word considered? That word is talking about what he chose to look at. He did not make a final conclusion just based on the physical circumstances. His conclusion, his decision was based on what God said instead of what he saw. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Again, this word considered is talking about the intensity of which you look at something. It doesn't mean a casual glance. It means the intensity of your gaze. What you choose to focus on, what you choose to see, and what meaning you attach to what you see. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham realized that if God's the creator of the universe, he can be a creator of life in him. I want to read this to you from the American Standard Version, at least part of it. I won't read the whole thing. Verse 18, who in hope believed against hope. Again, talking about the word of God versus physical circumstance. Who in hope believed against hope to the end that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall thy seed be. And without being weakened in faith, he considered his own body now as good as dead, he being about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. The American Standard Version turns it around. He's, the American Standard presents it as Abraham saw the condition of his body. He's not in denial. He saw the condition of his body. But it didn't weaken his faith because what he saw and how he felt wasn't the final answer, wasn't the final verdict. He let God's word be the final authority, the final verdict even though his body was dead reproductively even though Sarah's womb was shut because of their age he didn't let that weaken his faith I like the point that he's making it goes on in verse 20 it says yet looking under the promise of God he wavered not through unbelief but waxed strong through faith giving glory to God it uses the same word, the American Standard translates the word considered in the previous verse. Again, it means the intensity of the gaze. It says even though he looked at his body and saw the condition, he did not let that affect his faith because he kept his eyes on the promise. See, folks, we always look at something. And again, I'm talking about the word considered. I don't mean we casually glance and notice things. I mean, we all look at something. And what we look at 
is what we've allowed to determine the final verdict in our case. It's what you see. That's what you're going to have. You remember in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 22, it says, My son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes. Let them not depart from before your eyes. What does it mean? It means see yourself with what God's word says is yours. See yourself with the answer that God has promised or spoken. Then it says keep your heart with all diligence. Verse 22 goes on to say for they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. I'm going to read to you from Numbers chapter 21 in the Old Testament. You'll remember this story talking about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness and they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. That means they took the long way around. Folks, if you hadn't found this out yet, you need to know that sometimes God takes you the long way around. With God, the shortest distance is not between two points. With God, the shortest distance is the way he sends you to go. And that's the most successful route you'll ever find in your Christian walk. So the people, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Notice what discouragement does. Discouragement influences you to speak against that which God has provided to help you and save you. They began to speak against Moses and against God saying, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. In other words, they say, We are sick of manna, God's provision. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. That's a poor translation. God doesn't send fiery serpents anywhere. You can find in the Old Testament where it talks about the land that they went through, it says it was full of fiery serpents. Yet the only time you ever find any Damage done by these fiery serpents to the children of Israel is here where they rebelled against God. So could we say perhaps that their rebellion against God removed the protection of the fiery serpents that were already in that land and they came in among the people and bit many of them and many of them died. Folks murmuring against God is not recommended. So the Lord sent or really allowed fiery serpents among the people. God really didn't have anything to do with it. They brought it on themselves, and they knew it. And they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, God's not been fair. Now they said, we've sinned. We've sinned. Now if that doesn't indicate that they know that the protection of God was lifted off of them because of their own actions. And what does it mean? They came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now notice the method whereby God gives them the opportunity to be healed. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, please notice that phrase, when he looketh upon it shall live. When he looketh upon it shall live. When he looketh upon it shall live. Now there's a lot of things we can talk about this story uh, in relation to what God commanded to be put on the pole. By the way, you do know the, the American Medical Association logo, don't you? It's the serpent on the pole. 
Somebody was influential in the early days of that organization and developed something that will stand it for all time to declare even among unsaved doctors that God is the healer. Why not a lamb on the pole? I doubt that would have made it into the logo selection. But Jesus died and was our substitute. He portrayed not the nature of God on the cross. He portrayed the spiritually dead nature of mankind. And Satan represents spiritual death. And just as he came in the Garden of Eden as a serpent, so in the same way Jesus is portrayed here as a serpent. Now Jesus said himself in John chapter 3, immediately following the wonderful scriptures that we know, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's where Jesus says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus in his earthly ministry identified with this story. He's saying the serpent on the pole represents him. Well, how could Jesus become the serpent on the pole except that his righteousness was traded for spiritual death? And if Jesus didn't pay the price for spiritual death and the requirement, the, the, um, uh, the demand of the sacrifice for spiritual death had to be blood. So Jesus identifies with this story. He identified himself with this story. It's not like we're trying to make something up to try to put him in a place that he wasn't in. He identified with this. So Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, notice this phrase, when he beheld the certain serpent of brass, he lived. Now, folks, this is kind of sterile. The story is a little bit sterile. But I want you to notice something. Nowhere does it say God chased the serpents out of the camp. So at the time, since the Bible doesn't tell us that that's the way that it went, when the Bible tells us the instructions that God gave to Moses, once you get the serpent of brass, anyone that's been bitten, when he looks upon it, he shall live. And then in the the next verse, after Moses carries out the plan and the purpose of God, the instructions of God, he puts the serpent of brass on the pole. And it says, when they beheld it, they lived. Why does it make such a point of looking upon the serpent of brass, beholding the serpent of brass, fixing the intensity of their gaze on the serpent of brass on the pole? Because the snakes are still around their feet. Now, how difficult do you believe it to be to keep your eyes on the serpent of brass Representing Jesus on the cross when you're feeling snakes crawl across your foot. Knowing full well that many that have been bitten by these snakes, these fiery serpents, and fiery just means poisonous snakes. Many of the people that were bitten by these things have already died. So God gave them a choice. It's the same choice we have. Do you look at the things around your feet? That's where the devil is. The Bible says God has lifted us up to be seated with him at the right hand of God the Father. And he's placed everything else under our feet. 
But our feet is what comes in contact with the world. Our feet is what comes in contact with the works of the enemy. So God is giving them an opportunity. If you want to be healed, if you want to be freed from this disaster, keep your eyes on that which represents Jesus on the cross and not on the snakes that are crawling around your foot. Can you see that? So when Brother Bosworth identifies that the number one reason that people lose their faith, lose their uh, healing was a counterattack of pain. He had a wonderful story that he used. I'm going to uh, adapt it a little bit for our day rather than the, the time that he gave this example. But let's imagine that you and I have some important business to conduct. It's equally important to you as it is to me. And we make a, an appointment to have a phone conference so that we can come to a place of agreement on what we're going to do about this business, how we're going to handle this business. Are you with me so far? Now, since it's just as important to you as it is me, once we make a commitment on when we're going to talk, maybe it's Tuesday at 10 in the morning, there would be no reason for either one of us to question whether or not the other is going to make the phone, the phone appointment, keep the phone appointment, right? Now, if, the, if it's not equally as important, then we might think it could slip somebody's mind. But this is real business. This is real important stuff. So we make a commitment to talk on the phone at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. What if you woke up Monday morning and had a pain in your side? Would that change your phone appointment or your willingness to conduct the business that we need to, to, to conduct? Would it have any effect on you whatsoever? You might not enjoy the pain. You might try to do something to alleviate the pain between now and then. But a pain in your body is not going to stop you from conducting a business or being involved in a business arrangement that pain has nothing to do with, Right? Well, then here was Bosworth's question. If physical pain is not sufficient to stop God's word from working in one area, how could physical pain stop God's, working, God's word from working in any area? See the point he was making? See, we can think of and, and imagine certain situations, many situations, I guess, <clears throat> where pain is irrelevant to what God has promised. You don't claim to not be saved anymore because you have a pain in your body, do you? Because we realize the new birth, making Jesus the Lord of our lives and entering into the family of God, those things are unrelated totally to any physical circumstance. And the point that he tried to make, and the point I hope you see, is that if pain in your body or any physical circumstance or any physical condition, symptom or whatever, if it's not sufficient not powerful enough to stop God's word from working in you, in you and in your life in one area, then how could pain ever stop the healing power of God from working in another area? I found something, folks. I found it by experience. This thing that I've been standing against for a long time, seven or eight years, going on eight years, I guess, I never really paid too much attention to when it started, so I don't know exactly. 
But this thing that, that I've been dealing with over the course of about eight years, coming up on eight years, one thing I have come to realize, and that is the place and the role that symptoms play in believing God for healing. This thing has had a myriad of physical symptoms attached to it. In fact, there are a lot of things that have taken place that I've experienced that after a few days really didn't give it much thought, but after a few days when something persists, then I go online to check different symptoms that are uh, related to neurological conditions and Parkinson's and all that kind of stuff. And I find out, well, that's one of the symptoms. And Parkinson's, which is a neurological disorder, your nervous system controls everything, or at least it is affected by everything. So there's a lot of stuff that, that I would think have thought are unrelated that I find out are directly related. And I found through ticking off these circumstances, these symptoms, one by one. And I, I'm not saying this is the way that everybody has to do it. I'm not saying it's the way that everybody is going to be led of the Lord to do it. But I found that some of the circumstances, some of the symptoms are ticked off in different periods of time. I had a, uh, the last two symptoms that I've experienced, the two new symptoms that I've experienced. I spent two days before I really got serious about finding out what they were and what it was associated with and so forth. I just made a general confession and then I got online a couple of days later found out that they were direct, directly associated as far as the medical community was concerned, uh, directly connected with Parkinson's. So I put my faith on it, and they were gone in 48 hours. I've had some things that took months. I've had a couple of things that took a few years. And now I'm dealing with things that I'm chasing away in a matter of a couple of days. And here's what it's taught me. And I want you to get this. I really want you to understand this. I found what it means when pain or when symptoms arise. You know what it means when you're believing God for healing and pain comes to your body? You know what it means when new symptoms crop up and you're believing God for healing? You know what that means? Absolutely nothing. The devil wants you to think that it means a lot. And it means absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Pain is not sufficient to stop any part of God's word or any promise of God's word from coming to pass in your life. It can't do it. But when people don't know that, when people haven't come to the realization that pain is just a distraction that the enemy is trying to use to get your eyes off the word, to keep you from looking at Jesus on the cross and instead the snakes at your feet. I found out firsthand, pain means nothing. Symptoms mean nothing. And folks, it's brought me to a place of confidence that if you would have asked me, could I be this much, this much more confident eight years ago than I was, I would have said, no way. But I'm astounded at the development of confidence in God's word that's taken place by seeing this happen one right after the other.
Now, don't get me wrong. I am believing for, and one of the things I've been confessing since the beginning is that I'm free from every trace of every symptom of every sickness and disease that would attack my body. And maybe because that was my confession, and I assume the Lord led me to do that, maybe that's why we're doing it this way. Maybe that's why it's coming to pass in the way that it is, one by one. Tick them off, run them away, one by one. I don't know. But do you know what? It doesn't matter. Symptoms don't matter. You remember what Job said when he's in the belly of the fish? He's already prayed for God to deliver him and send him on his way to where God wants him to be, which was Nineveh. Job said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Job called the snake around his foot, which was being in the belly of the fish. He called it a lying vanity. Symptoms are nothing. There's not one symptom of any disease, no matter how serious, no matter how painful. There is not one symptom of any sickness or disease that can change the truth of God's word in even the most minor way. God's word's true. And since it is, pain doesn't matter. Pain can't change anything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you sent your word and healed us. Thank you that since the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he quickens our mortal body. Therefore, we call our bodies alive. We call our bodies well. We say, Father, even as you said, that you restore our health and heal our wounds in the name of Jesus. Truly, Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we are healed. Every one of us. No matter the circumstance, no matter the symptom, no matter the diagnosis, none of that is more powerful than the truth of your word. And your word says we're healed. Thank you, Father, for bringing it to pass in our lives and in our flesh. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you.